Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. My guest this week is the secret weapon behind the most consistently funny and informative segment on late night television. When you pull back from the craziness of this week, one thing is clear. Trumpism is a giant loser for the GOP. It's not working. People don't want it. And they keep making that clear in election after election after election. And yet Republicans won't give up. I have no idea what people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are thinking. I can't get inside her head. Although if I could, I bet I would say it was... Repulsive. It smells bad. And I just, I think it's a terrible place. This has been A Closer Look. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Seth Meyers delivering his signature A Closer Look segment. No, Seth is not on today's show. That will have to wait for another time. But I am very excited to have as my guest the man who writes every single one of those pieces, Sal Gentile. As you may have heard, we are about one week into a writer's strike that is already having an enormous impact on the entertainment world, most immediately on late night TV which has gone dark as WGA members like Sal hit the picket lines to protest for fairer wages and a more secure future. It's an incredibly important issue that I did not want to ignore on this podcast, so I'm thrilled that Sal agreed to take a break from his work on the front lines of this fight to talk about what's at stake for writers like him and thousands of others. We, of course, also get into his very unique path from cable news producer to late-night TV writer, and what the process of putting together those sprawling A Closer Look segments several times a week actually entails. This is a fun and fascinating conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Here's me with Sal Gentile. Great. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, I've been a fan of your work for such a long time on the show. And I have thought about having you, asking you to be a guest on the, on the podcast, but it kind of took this writer's strike and seeing you, you know, videos of you out on the, on the front lines to, uh, to get me to actually make the ask. So um, I'm glad that I did. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, it was really nice. Um, the amount of interest people have, I'm, I'm really uh, gratified by it. And that was, that was so funny because I, uh, the picket lines have just been like, I mean, what are you talking about? Well, I won't talk too much about it, but like. Yeah, they've been in, like insane. So it was even louder than I could have possibly yeah. predicted when we scheduled that interview. <laughs> and uh, I uh, and I was using my wired headphones, and I but I think it came out okay. Yeah, what you said was good. What, the way you looked was a little insane. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I'm someone who thinks a lot about late night TV, watches a lot of late night TV, um, and you know, sort of knew that the strike was coming. But even I feel like I didn't quite realize how quickly it would all shut down um, and and just what that would feel like. Cause you know, I think there was hope that there would be a solution and that this wouldn't happen. Um, how did you find out that this was actually happening and that your job would all of a sudden, you know, be going away within hours? So we found out um, when the two sides released their statements on Monday night and um, the AMPTP, if I'm getting that correct, which just shows you how badly they need writers because that's awful. Yeah, yeah. The fact that, <laughs> yeah. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's the organization that the studios kind of get together and, and make all the decisions for everybody and decide all of your your fates. That's right. It's the it's their collective bargaining unit, basically. And so the faceless evil corporation, <laughs> yeah, the, the, perfect. the, the yeah. council of doom. Yeah. So and it so they released a statement Monday night, the when a few hours before the contract was going to expire now obviously we treat any statements from them with skepticism because it could be a tactic or whatever um but then we found out i think not soon after that uh the guild had made every attempt to stay uh they had uh, from what we've heard from the guild they actually waited at the offices even after the representatives for the amptp had left um to to see if there was any chance they'd come back to the table um but that ultimately, they left them with no choice with the contract expiring. Um, and uh, the WJ sent out an email to everyone saying, uh, we've 
unfortunately had to take uh, a vote to go on strike. Um, so we found out that Monday night and, you know, it, we'd all been, ex we'd all been, I guess, bracing for it. I don't want to say expecting it because everybody, as much as we were bracing for it, wanted to have optimism that there would be a resolution because on its face, it seems so obvious, you know, like, and we can get into a lot of the finer points, but on its face, it doesn't really seem that difficult. And a lot, I still have difficulty figuring out why the studios are being so intransigent on some issues, although the answers are actually fairly, the answers are obvious, but nonetheless, it seems like there should be a solution here. So we were bracing for it, but I think we were also trying to be as optimistic, optimistic as possible because as everybody who works on a show right now has said, and myself included, nobody wants to be on strike. Everybody wanted to go to work the next day. We just wanted a fair deal to do that. So it didn't quite feel real. And then when I woke up on Tuesday morning with no closer look to write, uh, just realizing there's no show today, that was when it really sunk in. And uh, it was crushing. And it was especially crushing then when we saw the list of uh, demands from the Guild paired with the responses from the studio. Because the responses from the studios, in many cases, were so like demeaning and insulting and dismissive you know, it, that's what was especially crushing, not only to not be able to go do this thing that we love, we all love writing so much, but then also to see so many times that they had just refused to negotiate on so many points. And so, yeah, that's when it really sunk in. When we saw that document and we woke up the next day and we're like, we don't have a show today. There's nothing, there's nothing, you know, because also that's like, for me, that's when I finally kind of Everything I've been storing up, like anger-wise, every watching the news, like uh, that's gonna I can find us sort of get it all out. And I just woke up being like, oh, I have to pace around my apartment now, being angry, <laughs> having all this pent-up rage. So uh, that's how we that's how we found out. Yeah, it did occur to me that you obviously can't write a closer look about anything in the news, but. You, you also can't write it about this strike, which is sort of what's on your mind. Did, have you thought about that at all? Like if you could write a closer look about the strike, what that would look like and what angle you think you would go at it and what people are missing in, in the strike? Oh, man, have I ever? Because you, you <laughs> as you said, it is the double whammy. Not only can I not write a, a closer look in general, but I can't even write a closer look about the thing that I'm the mo angriest about right now. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I have, I have thought a lot about that because like I said before, we all love writing so much. And in my particular case, I love writing a closer look and I love writing for our show. That's that, if anything, that's why we're striking is to protect what we love. We don't want this to be diminished for the writers to come after us. We love this so much. We want to protect it as a career. And so that I feel that way too. Um, I very much feel that way. Uh, uh, there are specific demands when it comes to comedy variety. I very much feel like I want this to maintain and remain uh, a sustainable career for somebody after me. So I love it so much. So I, yeah, I can't help but think about like how I'd approach this. And I think, you know, a lot of times with a closer look, I'll start with a sort of bird's eye view of like the broader picture and then hone in on specific details. And I think the broader picture, at least, is that this is an existential threat both to the career of writing, but to so many other industries as well. We are going through the kinds of change right now and the kinds of disruption uh, to people's livelihoods that so many other people have gone through in so many other industries. Uh, and so it's a broad systemic problem across the board. And they're not just going to stop with uh, streaming. They're not just going to stop with, say, Uber, with transportation. They're going to continue doing this. They're going to continue to try to chip away as much as possible at labor costs, at how much they have to relent, uh the value of human labor um, to find savings somewhere so that they can keep making the billions that they make and on an individual level, the executives making the tens of millions they make every year. So it's, going to, it's an existential problem for the entire U.S. economy going forward. And that, by the way, is why we've seen so much cross-union solidarity especially this time around, I've talked to so many veterans of the last strike. I, I, you know, I was in college during the last strike, so I didn't experience it personally, but I've talked to so many on the picket lines, um, who have echoed this uh, same sentiment, which is this time around, they feel so much broader 
so much more broader solidarity from other unions, from just the people around them, from people who are completely outside the industry, don't know very much. Even if you don't or, uh, know the specifics of what the Guild is asking for um, and the back and forth of the, the negotiations, you recognize sort of the broader existential problem here, which is that this very um, elite class of uh, people who have amassed all of this capital are trying to disrupt all of these industries uh, to make more money for themselves and pay you less money. And so uh, it's happening everywhere. And I think so anyway. I basically just started to do a closer look yeah. right for you right now, a live performance of it. Yeah. Do you have any um, clips to cut to? Or yeah, no? I know. Yeah. I believe, yeah. I've already, believe me, I've bookmarked them. <laughs> I I have them. And I definitely would have done a version of that AMPTP bit somewhere in there as well. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I have thought about it a lot. And uh, I've certainly had a lot of time circling the picket line uh, and sitting at home roaming around because... The other thing is like, even I've even discovered this on like normal hiatuses is like without the outlet, I am just going to walk around, pace around the apartment, talking <laughs> to anybody, my wife, my three-year-old, like, please listen to me about, you know, what this means. The latest drama at Fox News, you guys don't understand what it, it just says. It's a broader statement about the, the, condi the condition of the political <laughs> right. And no, everybody's just like, I'm going to put my noise canceling headphones on and not listen. Um, but in this particular case. Uh, thankfully, everybody around me is actually very interested. So I've had the chance to perform a version of this Closer Look for many people. Well, I think it is such a, it would be a great format for it because I think what a Closer Look does is it takes the news and kind of boils it down in some ways, makes it entertaining and funny, and but also explains it. You know, I always, I feel like I'm always telling people, you know, if you want to know, you know, sort of what's going on in the news in 10, 15 minutes and don't really want to watch the news, this is a pretty good way to do it. Um, but yeah, I think that the the strike in particular is a story. It has a it has some inherent challenges, I think, in terms of getting people outside of the industry to care about it, because there is some perception that this is, you know, Hollywood people who are probably pretty well paid, complaining, and you know, and but I think connecting it to some of these other fights and and pointing out that it is a you know just one of many um, these of this type of thing um, in different industries is is important. Absolutely, yeah. I mean. Um... Look at what happens. And also it affects the quality of what you're getting when you do this to your workforce. And I think there's no better example of that than Twitter. I mean, look what Twitter, look what happened to Twitter. Like, yeah, they fired everybody. They yeah. fired everybody. <laughs> and the, the site is horrible now. Yeah. Like if you turn writers into gig writers who are getting paid day rates to punch up terrible scripts generated by AI, that's just going to generate awful content. You're not going to want to watch that. And you're going to be so mad watching it. Like, um, and so, you know, I think they're aware of that as well. They know, um, the question is, uh, at what point they're going to give in. And I, I hope it's soon. I really do. Because the, the solutions seem fairly obvious because in many cases, like the structure we're talking about is, you know, it was never perfect, but it's been fought for, for so many years, uh, by the guild through collective bargaining, uh, for traditional media, for broadcast, for theatrical releases. That structure already existed. And again, it was imperfect, but at least that was there. And it was working in large part for lots of people to help sustain writers who are going from gig to gig. You know, people, I don't even think fully understand that. They, you know, it's not like just a traditional job, except for those of us who are incredibly lucky to have these sort of stable, I, I'm incredibly lucky and privileged to have a very stable uh, situation where I get to write a closer look every day for a show that I love. Um, but, you know, most writers, and this will be true of me, you know, whenever I go on to my next thing, are working from project to project. And, um, you know, it, so they're trying to string that together. And we had an old system that at me at least made that somewhat sustainable for to be a middle-class uh, writer. And all we would have to do is take big chunks of that structure and in, uh, supplant the, or move them over to to streaming and that's where the and the streamers just don't want to do that and the reason is because they see an opportunity to just stop paying writers what they used to pay them in traditional tv but they easily could yeah you said before it was kind of obvious why they're not negotiating why they're not giving in at all and do you i mean does that concern you that they they don't actually have the incentive in their minds to 
to change or to to give in on any of this? Well, I think that they're already beginning to realize. I think they. I th- so I think the ob- when, I, when I said it, the obvious, I think they're always going to try their upper hand first, and this is true of any industry, which is they're always going to try to break the union first, and they're always going to try to get the maximum they can out of the workforce. And they're trying to do, again, what they've done to so many other workforces because they see it's been so successful in cutting costs and allowing them to continue to take home tens of millions of dollars on an individual basis every year. I mean, like I was astounded. And this was one of this is one of the things I would have included in a, a, a closer look on this situation. Like all the you know, every, I think a lot of people have by now seen all the sort of like annual salaries of the top executives at these companies, right, which yeah. are mind boggling. And by the way, nobody in this industry blanches at all at the idea that a studio exec makes a lot of money. Like, we get it. Like, that's been true for, you know, <laughs> the longest time. Nobody's shocked by it. It's just that it it makes it fairly ridiculous on its face for you to say, we don't have the money to pay you. Like, so that's why it's galling. It's not galling to find out that the the head of a studio makes tons of money. It's galling when they say, oh, but we don't have any money for you. That's when it's ridiculous. But I was like astounded to find out that it's true everywhere. Even at, so, like I've been asking people this, like, so, you know, for example, at, at Netflix, like two executives each get paid $50 million. That's $100 million every year right there. Like there's an executive, I, one of the top execs at Roku gets paid $50 million. And I, I was like, Roku? Is there something I'm missing? Like, yeah. I, am I genuine? I've been asking people on the picket line. I've been like, am I out of touch? Like, is there something about Roku that's like taking yeah, maybe, over the world? Yeah, that person needs $50 million to, uh, you know, Inter- live their life. And yeah. And he, you know, you have to, I mean, if you don't have a backup yacht to uh, take care of you <laughs> when your first yacht breaks down, like that's not a livable situation. So, but I just am astounded by that. And so, um, so, uh, so I think again, yeah. Um, in uh, in performing this closer look for you again, I'm sorry, I I've lost track of this your question. Great, yeah. Everybody gets that. And so back to the original question of like why it's obvious. I mean, that's why it's obvious is because they want to see at the, the maximum that they could get. They want to try to break the union. They want to try to turn this into a gig economy, um, just like they have with other in, other industries. And so that's why we were forced to strike to make them feel to see to to feel the incentive to see the pain, and it's already happening. Productions are being shut down. You know, again, uh, shows that would be in the in in uh, in development right now uh, have had to stop. Beloved shows. Yeah, you got to think. People... Stranger Stranger Things shutting down was a big one that has got to got to hurt Netflix, right? Exactly. I mean, everybody. You know, it's a it's a massive franchise for them. Um, everybody loves stranger things uh i believe it's the, is it the final season uh, i think so i don't know i only watched the first season and then gave up myself but but i'm sure i'm sure it's very great <laughs> <laughs> it definitely has a huge audience so you know like that's the incentive that's where the incentive is going to come from and you know it's just again i hope they just realize it sooner than later i mean that's really the the thing that we can hope for yeah um so on the show on on late night um seth spoke about this a little bit in his um, last corrections piece before the strike. And then he talked about it again at the end of his last A Closer Look on that Monday night. Um, did he discuss with you at all what he wanted to say there? Did you know that what, that he was going to include that at the end of A Closer Look? He actually didn't. I did know that there was, I just knew that there was going to be something added to the end uh, after the sort of second uh, title card rolls at the end. Uh, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And uh, I was just incredibly proud uh, to, uh, that he that he did that. I also feel very strongly that what the writers are asking for is not unreasonable. And as a proud member of the Guild, I'm very grateful that there's an organization that looks out for the best interests of writers. So if... You don't see me here next week. Uh, know that it is uh, uh, something that is not done lightly and that I will be heartbroken to miss you as well. And let's just keep our you-know-whats and see me when you see me. Yeah, I mean, he's just... I, I... I'm not saying anything he hasn't said on air, but he identifies as a writer first and he loves writing and he supports us 100%. And it's incredibly gratifying 
to hear that from him, but I did not know that he was going to say that. And I was getting, I, cause it was that, it was the Monday. It was the last day. It was the day when we were kind of like on edge trying waiting to find out. And I was sitting there in the studio as I do during every closer look, taking notes, you know, for post, like if, you know, what we're going to, what, what we might edit or whatever. And, uh, and also just to be there if Seth wants to roast me for a joke, I write that was badly. <laughs> um, and uh, I felt myself getting a little emotional because I was really proud to work for somebody who um, supports writers and loves writing and considers himself a writer. And that's what the experience of working there is like every day, which is why we love it so much. Like the camaraderie of writing is so much fun. Like Seth and I and our producer, Mike Shoemaker, sit in a room with uh, the rest of our staff, our talented uh, production staff on Zoom. And we read through our draft of A Closer Look and we just sit there and laugh at how stupid everything that like the side, <laughs> like we, we enjoy the catharsis of the political commentary, but then we also have some incredibly dumb bits and we'll warn each other in advance. Like either, you know, I'll be like, yeah, I went a little nuts today. Like I went like <laughs> side, side tangents to a, a random Al Pacino impression that makes no sense whatsoever or. Like Seth will be like, uh, yeah, I took a few off ramps today. Like I went a little crazy as well. Like we'll warn each <laughs> other and then we'll get it. Or the best is like if I write something like totally an insane tangent and then he likes it and he wants to add to it and he like messes around with it and adds more to it. And then it's just the two of us and we're looking at like the younger people on the Zoom, just like totally blank faces that are like, they just do not understand why we've got off on this tangent about like mash or something like yeah. so. Um <laughs> Uh, but we'll just be there uh, laughing at our incredibly dumb bits. And uh, the camaraderie of writing is is such a fun thing. We love that so much. So anyway, it very much echoed what he said on the air, very much echoed the experience of working there, which is that he loves the writing process. Coming up, Sal shares the story of how he made the jump from cable news to late night TV and later shares his takes on some of the news stories that have broken since the strike started. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Yuffie X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? What was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, Darcy Carden, and her favorite comedian friends, as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you will learn that's the sciencey term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how the hell did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with some of the other comedy writers who've been out there on the picket lines this week, like Jenna Friedman, Anthony Atamanik, Blair Erskine, Matt Rogers, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. 
And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Sal Gentile. So I'd actually love to hear more about your story and how you uh, joined Late Night, because you have a pretty unique path to this, right? I mean, you started in news before you went to, to comedy, so um, which is, you know, kind of kind of living the dream, right? To to go from <laughs> from from the news world to the comedy world. How did you make that move? Well, so uh I was actually on sort of this double track, which was which is really sort of how it happened. Um you know, uh coming out of college, I just knew I I wanted to be a writer. Like I I loved writing and that's um what I did. And I did both like in college, you know, I I uh I actually literally majored in writing. I wrote journalism, and then I also did comedy at college as well. So when I got out of college, I was just like, I nobody in my family has any even remote idea of the entertainment industry as a thing. Like, I'm the first to go to college in my family. So, um, like, nobody, that wasn't even a notion that I could be, like, a comedy writer. But I loved Late Night. Like, I grew up on Conan and Jon Stewart. So, uh I was like in my head, I was just like, oh, that'd be an amazing job. <laughs> like I did, I had no idea how to pursue that. Um, so I got journalism jobs, uh, writing jobs here and there out of college. Um, but then I discovered the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York. And I had never necessarily been a performer. I'd always been a writer. But it was just a way to keep that part of what uh, of my, to keep that passion alive was to do UCB. So I started taking classes there. I was doing that at night while I was doing my day jobs in news and quickly realized as I was doing that, I was like, oh, this is what I love. I love, I specifically love doing improv. It somehow was like the only form of performance that didn't make me nervous at all. Like I was always nervous doing stand up or something like that. But like improv, I think because if it's like, it's basically just writing on your feet was very much just like I would be on the back line with a premise and then I would just come out and be like, I can do this. So I was doing this double track where at night I was doing UCB. I was taking classes. And then during the day I was doing day jobs and news. I worked at the PBS station in New York for a little while. Um, and then I worked at MSNBC for Chris Hayes. And around the same time that I was working for Chris Hayes, who I love and who was a, an incredible mentor just at the craft of writing as well, I also got on a bunch of house teams, like the teams that regularly perform at UCB, at least, you know, before, this was pre-COVID. Um, for both improv and sketch. So uh, I was doing that. It was also, it was basically like a second job. I was doing that at night. Um, and uh, so uh, this, there was an inflection point. So this was the crazy thing was I was working for Chris Hayes when he uh, had a weekend show at MSNBC, when he hosted Saturday and Sunday mornings, which was kind of great for me because it allowed me to do all my nighttime comedy stuff to like perform at random venues all over the city and write sketches and stuff like that. And then he uh, was going to move to 8 p.m. to his current time slot now. And uh, Chris was incredibly gracious. I loved working with him. And he was like, you know, he wanted me to come with him to 8 p.m. He wanted to bring the whole staff with him to 8 p.m. And I had this moment where I had to decide. I was like, if I go work at a show at 8 o'clock at night, I can't do comedy anymore. And by that point, I was regularly, I was like, uh, I was on shows. I was doing everything you could possibly could, like, a midnight bit show at UCB with like five people in the audience, like anything you could possibly do. And so I just said to him, you know, I think I, I love doing comedy and I don't want to give it up. So I think I'm going to stay in the weekend slot. And he was incredibly supportive. Like he loved, he loved that I was passionate about it. He was like, if that's what you love doing, great. So I stayed in the weekend slot. Um, I stay, stayed on my current schedule at MSNBC. And then uh, that, what took me through 2013 when I start, when I discovered I randomly met Mike Shoemaker in the hallways, in the bowels of 30 rock, which is a story we've discussed before wearing my UCB hoodie. Um, and, uh, he, this was at the very, very early stages when it had been announced that Seth was going to take over, but they were hiring up a staff and they had, and at the time they were actually looking for a segment producer who could do both, um, who had some comedic instincts, who could do sort of like the comedy friends that Seth would have on, second producers for people who don't know, at uh, late night shows, they do the interviews. So um, you produce the interviews. Um, so he was looking for somebody to produce interviews with 
who could do comedy guests, who could also do authors because they were very keen to do that kind of thing, um, and politicians. We just genuinely just sort of like struck up conversation in the hallways of 30 Rock. And <laughs> it was at a, just this random sort of serendipitous thing. And um, it's so funny because I remember when I was working at Chris Hayes, when it got announced that Seth was going to host the late night and I knew him from Weekend Update, I... And at the time, I was like on a sketch team at UCB, an improv team. I remember as clearly as anything in my life having the thought, man, that would be great to work for that show. But I have utterly no idea how to do that. Like, yeah, I, you, did, you didn't take any actual steps towards uh, trying zero. to Zero. I took no steps toward it. In fact, I probably took negative steps toward it because <laughs> I was like just plowed into like UCB. Even at UCB, I was not doing anything to sort of like get industry attention. You know what I mean? Like I never did like showcases or anything like that. I was just like writing a million trip, performing at, uh, doing our monthly sketch show, performing at Harold night, uh, which was the which was the regular, um, show that, you know, house teams were on at the time. And that was fun. And that was just like, great. I love doing this. Um, so I just remember having that thought and be like, oh, that'd be cool for me. And my friends all the time would say things to me because of this combination of skills that I had, where I was like, I worked in news, but also like did comedy. My UCB friends would be like, man, that kind of thing, that would be like perfect for you. And like we'd be at McManus <laughs> after a show at like 11 o'clock at night, the bar we all hang out. And I'd be like, yeah, it really would. I guess. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, I have no idea how to get that. And it turns out that uh, the way to do it is just to wear a UCB hoodie around the hallways of 30 Rock. Very so, smart. Yeah. 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 <laughs> In retrospect, it was a genius tactical move. I'm a chess master. I, at all move, at all times, I'm I'm a puppet master. I'm thinking 10 steps ahead. And I was like, this is how I plant the seed in Shoemaker's mind. Um, so I got hired as a second producer. Um, and I did that for roughly a year, year and a half from when the show launched in 2014. And uh, I would say late 2014, 2015, something like that, Seth wanted to start doing like desk pieces that were sort of short explainers on stuff in the news. They were not called a closer look at the time. Um, like sort of extended versions of what he would do at a weekend update. Like obviously he would do really at weekend update. And so he wanted to do some version of that. And he knew that I had these skills. And, uh, I remember, I think one of the first ones was like on the Greek debt crisis. So it must've been like 2014, which is crazy to think back. Like, and also like, so that again, that would, to me was like, oh my God, I picked, I lucked into the, the right job because the host of the show is calling me in to say, he wants to do an explainer on the Greek debt crisis, like with Joe, like, and so I sat there and we just kind of like talked it through, like both the issues and also like bandied about jokes. Um, it was great. And Seth really enjoyed doing it. And then he just kind of gave me an open invitation to be like, if you have any, if you come across any other ideas you think would be good for a short little explainer at the desk. And at that point I had made it clear because I had friends on the writing staff from UCB um, and they knew me from UCB and I was still doing UCB stuff at the time, putting out like videos and everything. So I kind of made it like subtly clear, like I want to be a writer. I didn't do anything actively aside from just letting people know like, man, I'd love to be a writer, but I put it out there. But so when I got that invitation from Seth to kind of submit to him, basically, I really seized on it. I just started like sending him like emails that were like essentially st went from like set like little segment ideas to like full scripts in email form. And he would just ran with it and he would call me in and, and we'd, we'd work on them. And then what, what crystallized it, of course, was Trump announcing that he was running for president in 2015. And that, it, and that is when I was literally doing the job I have now of just writing a closer look, what would become a closer look and also second producing. And they were like, okay, we just need to move you over to the writing staff because yeah, you can't like, do both That's these. what I've been trying to do. Yeah. 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 And so it was mutually agreeable. I was like, yes, I would love to do that. And so in the summer of 2015 is when I moved over and became a writer. And from there, it's just been closer look basically the whole way. And what, so when was the, when was the first a closer look and, and how did that happen that it became what it was? That is a great question. And that is actually something a couple weeks ago, the staff and I were trying to figure out, we actually played a little game where we were trying to figure out how many closer looks we've done. And we did one of those <laughs> like guessing, like the. Um, the, our production staff who does all the graphics and clips, we did, everybody wrote down a number and we tried to guess. I think it came out to somewhere we've done, I could be wrong. This could, I could be either thinking of my guess or the correct answer. I can't remember. <laughs> 
Because I was off, by the way. I was wrong. Somebody else was right. Yeah, you were way off. Yeah, but I think it came out to like 850 or something like that. Maybe closer to 900, something along those lines. Um, Because I also would love to keep in mind, because we know, otherwise we would never do this, but like I'd love to keep in mind when we do our thousandth closer look, it'd be a cool thing to 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 sort of just note on air but um uh but um i think the first time we hit it home i'm trying to remember i I remember one of the earliest ones we did was on a republican house hearing on defunding planned parenthood that was kind of a a hit online and people really liked it and it was like a longer it was probably one of the longest pieces we did we called that a closer look and i think that was in the early days when we were trying to figure out like Sometimes we would do pieces, we just call them or we just give it a random segment name and then it would it would not be a repeatable name. And this one we called a closer look and because it kind of took off and was popular, I think that was around the time we decided like, hey, maybe we should just brand these as the same thing every time we do them. And uh, so that had to be, I think that might have even have been, God, I can't remember if it was before or after uh, Trump announcing, but it was definitely around that time. And so that was one of the first ones we did. Um, we did another one early on, I remember, about transphobic bathroom bills that uh, really, um, that people really appreciated a lot and got a lot of attention. And that was a, another one that we called a closer look. And so those were two, for one of the, those were some of the earliest ones I remember that were called a closer look and that we remember thinking to ourselves, like, people, I guess people are enjoying this. We should, we should, we should commit to this segment idea. Before we get to the congressional hearing, it's important to know what this is about. Heavily edited tapes secretly recorded by an anti-abortion group of Planned Parenthood officials allegedly discussing the sale of fetal tissue. So how much of an impact has the controversy had on Planned Parenthood's popularity? Well, according to a new NBC poll, Planned Parenthood is the most popular political entity in the country. Polling above Barack Obama, the Republican Party, and even Donald Trump, a man who literally gives away free stuff at his campaign events. <laughs> Say what you will about his politics, but free hats. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that they have taken off in the way that they have and do so well on YouTube and get so many views and all that, because it does kind of go against the grain of what people thought would go viral on YouTube, you know, it's long, it's complicated, it's on these sort of not very, um, you know, fluffy issues, and 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 they and they and people love them. So yeah, how do you how do you explain that 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 they that they do so well in that um, in that format? You know, so I first of all, what you're saying is rings totally true, and that's exactly what's going through our heads. Like, I remember when I was coming up in comedy, and and. The thing was make make web videos, just write sketches, make web videos. Maybe they'll get posted somewhere, funny or die or whatever like that. And I remember being strictly told the rule, the golden rule is it cannot be longer than two and a half minutes. If anything is longer than two and a half minutes, no one will watch it. No one has the intent. <laughs> it was like, like we would get that feedback from places. Like we would be told that constantly. Like if a friend, if we were filming some dumb thing in our apartment, and we're like, all right, we'll put this online. Like, we got to make sure to cut this down as short as possible. And nobody's going to watch anything longer than two and a half minutes. Like, and it was so gratifying to see that people actually not only do have the attention span for 10, 12, 14, sometimes closer it gets to like 20 minutes on a really big news story. And uh, those are the ones that are probably arguably like even more successful and are more watched online. And we were as shocked and gratified as anybody else would be. And it only incentivized us. Like, let's say we did one that was like eight minutes and it took did really well. Then it just gave us the license to do one that was 10 minutes and 12 minutes and like not cut it to the bone the way we might have if we were scared. You know, I think that for me, I think it feels the explanation that I, I, I have in part is very much applies to us too, which is that the news for the past decade or so really has felt so utterly dizzying you know, for us as people who whose jobs it is to keep track of it, I can't even imagine what it's like just as somebody who's trying to make sense of it at home on a daily basis, just to be an informed citizen. And it also feels so disparate. Like there's a bunch of random crazy things happening. Like Trump said this thing over here and Elon Musk did that thing over there and this thing happened to Fox News. And so one thing we always try to aim for is like a through line that kind of pulls all these threads together and says like, here's 
a story of what is happening in American politics right now, um, which is a kind of a little bit of how we were talking earlier about the strike. Like, you know, this broader theme of like these things are actually connected uh, in a way that tells a, so a story. And so I think there's a couple things going, which is one, I think maybe people appreciate that. I do as somebody who's processing the news. I'm like, I'm trying to figure out like, how do these things relate to each other? Because there's, it feels like there's a common thread here. So if we can pull that common thread together, it kind of makes sense of all this hectic insanity that's going on. And also it is just like cathartic as, as the, the same feeling I have of like pacing around my apartment and desperately trying to get my wife to listen to my political rants, like, <laughs> or anybody on the street. I'm sure people feel that at home. And, you know, like, so I think it's it's just cathartic. And as cathartic it is as it is for them, which a lot of people, they tell us that they're just like, it's so cathartic to, like, especially in the height of the insanity of the Trump era. But again, that insanity persists now. I mean, the guy is running for president again. So you watch and you feel figures, uh, people in positions of authority saying things that are insane. But you're asking yourself, but they're in a position of authority. So who's insane? Are they or am I? And it's nice to have an outlet. You're watching us and we can just sort of touch our feet to the ground of reality and say, here's where reality is. And also a huge reality detector is comedy, because this is the thing I learned from improv, which is like in improv, you'll start with a normal scene where it's like we're two roommates together. It's like everything's normal. The, when the audience laughs is when the first thing that we all collectively recognize as unusual happens. Like something weird happens and that's when the people in their scene go, okay, that's what's funny. The same thing is happening when we write about the news. It's like, we all have this innate sense of like somebody said something crazy. And so <laughs> comedy is good at like, or at least we're, we could, we feel like using comedy is a good tool for both catharsis and also for all of us collectively recognizing like that's insane. And so, yeah, there's there are those moments. Yeah. Even in, in a closer look where you'll play a clip of something insane and the laugh comes before Seth says anything about it. Exactly. Because just uh, based on his face and being able to relate <laughs> to that experience. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because Seth is having the same reaction. I have the same reaction that the audience is having the same reaction. We all watch that. But the audience watching that clip is having the same reaction. We had it the first time we saw it, decided to put it in a closer look. And that's our comedic instinct. That's our BS detector going off. It'd be like, this is insane. And then from there, that gives us the off ramp to do jokes. And also, again, then to step back and pull that thread together and say, like, here's how that insane moment connects to this other insane moment. Um, you mentioned that you that it's been difficult to not have this outlet to to channel your anger, uh, you know, and 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 frustration over the past week. What are what are the stories from the past week that you were like, oh, I really wish we were on right now to cover? Uh, well, you know, um, we were really making a lot of hay out of the fallout from going on at Fox News. So that's yes. probably something. Yeah. You got to do a little Tucker, but you didn't get all of it. Yeah. 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 Um, we made a whole week out of it, um, which was really. Uh, but again, that was one that was like the details were obviously so insane. That sort of like Unabomber type video message he put out where he was you know um <laughs> in i guess like a bass pro shop his own personal you know um uh racist sauna business room or something like but um, yeah, i heard someone someone say that that was he found the only corner of his home studio that didn't have uh fox news branding on it so he had that's why it was so awkwardly placed. must have been what it was because we bet all he had in the corner behind him was like a little globe and a boat and yeah. it was like, we were like, what is this? And we made, and that was how this is, again, this is where the dumbness comes in because we made so much hay out of that globe being we're like, oh, look, this guy expects us to think he's smart. Look, he's got a fucking globe over his shoulder. Look at <laughs> spinning it around. And we were supposed to imagine that he's spinning it around all day going like, hmm, I'm such a worldly guy. Like, it's also like such a, I've never seen, you've never seen a clip. Like I, the, when I think of globes, I only think of Bond villains. Like no, nobody, like <laughs> nobody actually smart. Like nobody sits with a globe anymore. We all have Google Maps. I do love that. Um, that Seth's Tucker Carlson impression has really become uh, something to behold. I think over the over the past year or so. I appreciate you saying that because we, <laughs> I love, I love writing that bit, and I love that Seth has a, a fantastic Tucker impression. Personally. I'll never tire of Tucker's just asking questions routine. Were these protests against Biden's vaccine mandate? Did Joe Biden secretly replace all the real pilots with communist Antifa wokeanistas? Or were 
The delay's caused because the flight attendants refuse to give you a second bag of Biscoff cookies when you ask. For one, because according to them, the plane was taking off soon, and when they asked you to put up your tray table, you said no, because you still had one Biscoff cookie left that you were saving for later. And if you put it in your lap, you'd get crumbs on your nicest travel slacks. And when they threatened to remove you from the plane and you said it was your God-given right under Article 67, Section Z of the United States Constitution, Part 9, to do what you wanted with your Biscoff cookie, the guy next to you said, loud enough for everyone on the plane to hear Biscoff, more like jerk-off, and everyone laughed. Even the pilots laughed because you can hear them chuckling over the intercom. And when you then lie down in the aisle as means of protest and screamed, I'm not moving until everyone on this plane gets unvaccinated, only to be told that wasn't possible. Did you yell, it is possible, you can poop it out? I read it on Facebook. But before you could provide the link for everyone to read, did a large man lift you up and shove you into the overhead compartment while everyone cheered? Could that be why the plane was delayed? Well, we can tell you that it is because it happened to me yesterday. I also love that it, like, we had so much fun with it because, like, he, his shtick was so infuriating in many ways that it was, like, kind of hard, hard to nail down comedically for so long. And then just, like, doing that heightening thing of que question asking kind of felt like it was getting to, getting to it without having to ever, like, sort of, like, spell out what we were doing. It was just, you could see on its face by us, by Seth's impression of it, how absurd what he's doing is, but he masks it so well. But then, um, so I'm so glad you say that because we had a, a lot of fun with it. And so I guess RIP to the Tucker impression because I would. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's like on the one hand, I hope he disappears from the face of the earth. On the other hand, you know, he might he might have a comeback and that would give uh, Seth some material. So, it's like kind of a little know. bit like Trump where it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. we it's in the same way. It's like, I really, we love doing this impression, but we really hope it doesn't come back. Like, it's like, we really hope Trump loses the 2020 election. Um, uh, but we're, you know, we're prepared joke wise if he, if he doesn't. Yeah. You did miss out on the, uh, the deposition that Trump gave in the Eugene Carroll, uh, case. That would have been a good one. I yes. Think. We did miss out on that too. We definitely would have covered that for sure. There's so much, um, I have to almost like resist like now, but normally I will, you know, scroll all day through the news and like a bookmark headlines and read them and get mad and then like make an outline of like bookmark stuff. And I now have to just like not click on that stuff because I'm so focused on the strike and like yeah. and also because well, I'm not be, working. Yeah, it must be kind of refreshing in some ways to not have to pay so much attention. It's for just a different a, kind a of while. torture. <laughs> it's just a different kind of pain. I just am torturing myself in a different way. Like it, I you like I've never I've I've come to peace with the fact that I'll never be at peace news wise like with the news. So um, you know, I think we're all hopeful that this strike does not drag on for a long time, but it's certainly possible that it does. I mean, it seems like there are a lot of people predicting that it does last, you know, longer than the last strike, which was three months. Um, do you worry about the, the long-term impact on late night TV? If this drags on, you know, what will it look like when it comes back? I just haven't thought about it other than how I think happy we will be. And I, I think, I hope our audience will be for us to come back. Um, but, you know, for now, I just think we're all so committed to the cause of what we're fighting for that we're going to do it for as long as it takes. And um, uh, so, you know, and like I said earlier, we're doing it because we love it. So believe me, we'll be thrilled to go back to work once we get a fair deal from the studios that addresses our very reasonable concerns. But um, so, you know, I haven't it's one of those things I've had to compartmentalize because there's so much going on. It's like, you know, just to get through every day, uh, you know, we it's really it really is taking it a one day at a time thing because there's so much that's 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 not within your control. Like, I have no idea when the studios are going to decide to come back to the bargaining table in good faith. I really hope they do it soon. Um, but uh, so to get through that, it's just we we all everybody on, on the picket line is just like has, has to take it day by day. But we all are so committed to doing this for as long as it takes uh i just we all just have to simultaneously hope it doesn't take that long because again as i said before the solutions i think everybody agrees are fairly obvious and clearly the money is there so it's just a question of when they're going to come to their senses and decide to just give us a fair deal and then it'll all be over and then we'll be able to come back and write really dumb bits in a closer look <laughs> about tucker's globe yeah i mean i i feel like the i love this format and this you know this medium so much of late night tv you know we've already seen your time slot competition disappear that they're and they're not replacing uh james corden's show there have been other you know changes in the in the late night landscape so yeah i mean i my hope is just that this strike is not an an excuse to you know 
diminish the the medium even more. Yeah. I mean, obviously I, I hope that too. I, I do, you know, from all I could say is it's like you said, you know, before we see that, like, you know, obviously, um, the way people view these things is changing, but you know, our closer looks the the last week, you know, our three, I think our, I can't remember exactly, but like our, I think just our three closer looks combined the week before the strike had something like eight and a half million views just on YouTube. So like, you know, we know that people, and we're so gratified for that. And there's definitely, there's a connection there because again, as I said, like they're, they're just as cathartic for us to do as they are for the audience to watch. And so I hope, I think that connection will last, you know, like, I think that, that clearly that, that audience is there for it, figuring out, you know, what the future is going to look like. That's what, that's what's happening right now. And that's what the strike is about, um, in many ways. Um, but you know, I definitely think the audience is there for it. And I think that, and I think, and I hope, I know, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to but I think, and I hope they'll be there for it whenever we, we do come back. So before we go, um, we end the show with a segment called the first laugh. So I'm going to ask you a few questions, uh, to end here. Um, starting with the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up. Oh man. The first piece of comedy that made me laugh really hard as a kid growing up. It was probably like, uh, Nick Nickelodeon shows because they were definitely like kids shows were weirder when I was, I, or at least I feel Ren, that way now Ren as a and parent. Stimpy, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I've been thinking about that as a, as a parent now of a three-year-old a lot because they were so weird. Ren and Stimpy, Rocco's Modern Life. Classic. Classic. It was so weird. That, and so if we're going really young, that was like, I definitely remember that's one of the first things that made me laugh. And <laughs> that and, and Looney Tunes, like, which if you're, if you're real jackal, if you watch jackals being, if in case you don't know, jackals are kind of the, uh, uh, the, the adopted slogan of, uh, or adopted namesake of people who watch, uh, our show specifically because Seth and Seth and corrections calls the people who correct him jackals. Uh, yes. Yeah. So if you're a late night fan, if you watch closer, look, you'll notice there are a fair amount of Looney Tunes references in it. <laughs> we once again, talking about really dumb really dumb tangents we went once went on such an insane tangent i can't even remember what news story prompted it it didn't have any connection to the news where seth i this was a like such a funny this was like a perfect example of like the camaraderie of writing and seth being willing to do dumb like the dumbest stuff if he thinks it's funny i wrote in something about him doing an impression of al pacino playing uh foghorn leghorn and <laughs> uh it makes no sense out of context don't and like i but uh, um, but you just may, to see what he would do with it, just to, he, just because he wanted way, to hear, and he, yeah. And he gamely did it. I think, thankfully, I think, thankfully, this was when we were in the studio, but we had no audience yet. Yeah, thank that's God. Helpful. Yeah, thank God there was no <laughs> audience there. Um, but uh, but so anyway, so Looney Tunes as well. I remember those young, and then and then once I got older, like uh, Conan, uh, uh, for sure. You've gotten to be on screen a little bit on late night. Do you remember the first time that you were? on the show and what that felt like? Yeah, I think so. So I think the first time I was on the show was when another writer of ours wrote in, uh, wrote a p uh, piece called The Conservative Perspective, Matt Goldich, where he played a fake conservative. Uh, and he then he did a, uh, and he was sort of, uh, he played like an arch, ridiculous, like bow-tied conservative. And, uh, and he was the gist, uh, it's a very funny sketch where the gist was like, he was interrupting to say, how come conservatives never get a voice on the show? But then he would have, he, uh, Seth would ask him one very simple question and he would have not an answer to it. And then there was a <laughs> side joke that he had an incredible, his own incredibly long, uh, intro package that was like a minute long, like where it would be like triumphant music with like Eagles and like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And then he wrote a sequel to it because it went well the first time. That was called the progressive perspective, where I would play a far less heightened version of myself. Like this, the joke inside the room was that it was basically me. Like, but <laughs> I would be like in in like a like a really ill fitting suit with like a tie, like, and I would be and I, my hair would be insane, and I would be accusing Seth of being sort of like a corporate centrist and being like, "How can yeah. you never <laughs> give time to like the the radical left, Seth?" Like. Which is really just like, again, the reason why it worked so well in the writer's room and then thankfully did well on the show as well is because everybody knew it was really just me. Like it was just a just a barely heightened version of me, <laughs> like yelling at Seth. And uh, 
and he'd be like, but the same thing would be happening. The same thing would be like, he would be like, uh, fine. So set Sal, like, give me a, an answer for this one thing. And then I would just be like, uh, and then I would just cut back to the, the credits for a progressive <laughs> perspective. And it would just be like a really yeah. long minute long thing of, that would have like fight the power and like, uh, uh, all of progressive icons. All right. This is another one of our writers, Sal Gentile. And, and let me guess, Sal, you're a progressive uh, yeah, Seth, I'm a progressive. I don't know if you've ever met a real one at one of those CPAC conferences you attend with Milton Friedman and John McLaughlin. I know both of those people are dead. Well, thank you, private health insurance. <laughs> Seth, it's time for a new voice on your show. It's time for the progressive perspective. Fight the power! That was really fun, A, because it was just close to me, so it didn't really feel like acting. It was just, like, me doing myself. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and you know, it was, like, that first thing of, like, that was also really sort of thrilling and exciting, like, reading cue cards in front of an audience, which is a, I'd never done before. Yeah, like That I'd, seems scary. Yeah, I'd been in a few taped pieces. Like, I, my favorite thing I ever did on the show was I got to do an improvised scene with Larry David, which was, like, incredible. We oh, did this, wow, yeah. We did this uh, thing called... Uh, um, what if everybody had their own Larry David, where Seth uh, is basically a guy who doesn't feel comfortable saying no to his writers or like, uh, and so uh, Larry's like, it's easy, I'll do it. And then, uh, <laughs> so it's a pre-taped segment where Larry does I everything difficult. This, yeah. yeah. And then, so there was a situation where I got to play at a, a, a writer's making, placing sort of an obnoxious lunch order to an assistant. And then Larry just intervenes to be like, you're making it too complicated. And it was just like Curb, where like the outline of it was there, but the rest is just improvised. Amazing. And so I got to do a few takes that were uh, improvised with him. And there was one where I, I it, the footage exists somewhere, but it's not. It's like I've been told that it would be a gift for my birthday one day. They would give me this cut footage where I went like, because I'm supposed to look like the the idea of the sketches you're supposed to lose to Larry, because the idea is if everyone has their own Larry. Larry's going to do uh, the thing you wish you could do. And, uh, but I really went toe to toe with him defending myself. <laughs> cause I like, cause it was just my, like my improv instincts came out where I was like, I'm just going to keep heightening. Like, like, and so it became like a fight over who was, who was right. And, oh my God. Uh, and Seth was there while he was like watching backstage with the other writers. He's like, oh, I even forgot Sal's an improviser. And everybody <laughs> was like, that's great. We can't use any of it. <laughs> too bad so i've been told that it was my it was my it was my curb your theory their curb your enthusiasm fantasy camp basically and i've been or told, your audition for you know maybe uh if, you, hey larry if you're out there i please <laughs> remember me uh, i'm the guy who ordered the salad in that sketch you know what you are you're finicky by proxy finicky by proxy yes finicky by proxy what does that mean that means that she's the one who's the jerk and not you you're Mr. White Gloves sitting in your office with all your substitutions waiting for her to come back. Okay? I want to see you go down and get it. I want to see you say the you say those substitutions to that guy. Okay? Okay, fine. We'll see how okay. you do. And you know what? Tape it. Okay. You I'd like to see his reaction. Here's what you're going to get. Oh, Jesus. Okay, fine. Yeah, I'll do it myself. Okay. I'll ask them. Okay. All right. Get okay. lost. All right. Okay. 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 I'll, do I'll be here. Okay. Okay. Maybe you already answered this, but the the next question is the first time you met one of your comedy heroes, um, and I'm sure a lot of people, you know, besides Larry, have come through late night as well that you got to meet. So, is there anyone else that comes to mind of someone that you really looked up to in the comedy world and what it was like to meet them for the first time? Oh man, I have to think. Um, so definitely, I mean, I already, yeah, I already said Larry, who I definitely would have would have been my number one answer to that. Uh, I got to meet Martin Short backstage really briefly, who is like the sweetest, kindest soul on earth yeah, he really is yeah yeah and he also was very effusive in his praise of a closer look which made me just like i was just like i can live on this forever like they can stop <laughs> they can stop paying me which uh that's amazing uh so like which they did yeah, yeah i was about so. to say which, which they ended up doing they were like you you can live on the praise from martin short like that's enough <laughs> for you for now Sal, I'm so glad that we did this. And, um, you know, I, I, as I said, I've loved your work for so long. And, um, yeah, I, uh, good luck with everything with the strike. I hope it doesn't last too long. I hope that the show comes back soon. And, um, yeah, I'll be, uh, I'll be, I'll be thinking about you. Thank you so much for your 
solidarity and support and for your kind words. This was super fun. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much to Sal Gentile for taking the time to talk about all of that with me today. I can't exactly tell you to tune in to Late Night with Seth Meyers right now, but all of his A Closer Look segments are on YouTube, so if you need a little political comedy fix, you know where to go. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is attributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.